0: Good evening, and welcome to Midnight Audio Theatre, the weekly show where we feature new and original audio dramas, be they adventure, mystery, sci-fi, or comedy. I'm your host, Kathy Ranella. Welcome, audio drama enthusiasts. Last week, we ran a bit short on time, as we had a lot to share and not a lot of time to share it, and tonight is going to be the same. (laughs) There's just so much great audio that we want you to hear. So let's get started. A reminder... Tonight's show is rated PG-13 for horror elements and suggestive content. First up, Folklore is back, and this time with a spooky story above ground, in a place that just doesn't seem to vibe with the rest of the world. Folklore started off as a three-episode pilot series that combined Glaswegian performance poetry with audio drama to great acclaim in 2020. And now, Folklore is back with a full series of queer horror for 2021. Here's another sample of it in this story, entitled Intruder. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to Folklore. Folklore is a queer horror podcast, written by queers for queers. This means it features themes of queerphobia, but doesn't exploit queerphobic horror tropes. There are no overarching content warnings for this episode. We include detailed content warnings with timestamps in our show notes. Please take care of yourself. Are you ready for your bedtime story?
2: Post the subreddit r slash paranormal encounters 12.6k upvotes What's your go-to story? I mean, what's the first thing that comes into your head when someone asks you about the craziest thing that's ever happened to you? Or the weirdest thing you've ever seen?
3: My answer to those questions isn't really a story. So, I hope that's not cheating. It's actually a place. And I have to go there at least three times a week. I don't think it's a niche experience to say that some places just don't feel right. It's a primal thing. Animal instinct left over from when our position on the food chain wasn't secured by science and stability. You know when something is wrong. It's that feeling of heaviness. oppressive and sound dulled vacuum that tells you you're about to get in trouble for breaking a rule you can't help breaking. You are in trouble. You've been found out. This place is where that feeling goes to breed, multiply, and distil. That's not very clear, sorry. I'll explain. I work as a delivery driver. Eight to six, I haul parcels upstairs, and then eight to midnight, I log into an app and wait to get pinged to pick up takeaway. I generally don't mind tenements and such, even though the winding stairs in the older buildings are a nightmare. Pretty nice gig most of the time. Especially when you've got the time to chat with a granny who really appreciates the pleasantries. This place is much newer and easier to navigate than the old buildings, but still. The vibes are, as the kids say, off. It was the packages themselves, at first. People order some truly wild stuff online. One of the great joys of my job is delivering giant dildo-shaped parcels to red-faced recipients, so I like to think I've got a pretty high tolerance for internet curios. But there are weird parcels that seem like silly secrets, and weird parcels that seem like you don't want to handle them too long for your own sake. I'll try and give you some examples rather than explain more. Not exactly a poet. (laughs) One apartment got a tech delivery, a hefty box absolutely covered with warning labels about how fragile it was. I need to get a signature for that kind of thing, but a teenager answered the door and when I asked if their parents were home, they just took the box without a word and slammed the door in my face. No answer when I knocked again. Next time I delivered to that close, I noticed the dusty old security camera in the corner slowly turn on its axis to stare at me as I left. I know that sounds crazy. It was just a camera, but it unsettled me. I leave parcels on the doorstep and knock before walking away now. Although the now unmoving lenses in the hall still seem a bit more interested than I'd like. Oh, I won't go into all the details of the second-floor flat that gets fifty kilos of frozen meat delivered every week like clockwork, All the fact. That sometimes that's supplemented with... Bugs. Something I only discovered when I dropped and split a box and what looked like greasy little cockroaches swarmed out of the torn cardboard like a plague. Woke bloke at the door chewed me out for a good five minutes while he scooped as much as he could grab of the squirming mass into a plastic tub. And I swear for a second his teeth caught the fluorescent hallway light like... <sighs> Some people keep exotic pets, so I guess it's not that weird. But what kind of animal, small enough to live in a flat, eats 50 kilos of anything a week? And that's not the only package i managed to fuck up delivering to that building, though it is the only time I've understood how I managed to fuck up. See, there's this one address on the upper floors that always makes my heart sink while loading up the van, because no matter what I deliver to that place... There's something wrong with it. I check and double check at the depot. Each box is in perfect shape. Nothing rattles or sounds loose inside. There's no water damage or stains. But as soon as I hand it over. There's something wrong with it. Once... I thought the lift was actually working because it opened right in front of me. A shifty looking guy stood silhouetted against the bright interior light and I shuffled over so he could pass me by into the wider hall. But when I went for the lift, the door slid closed and the external buttons did nothing no matter how much I hammered them. I just watched it function fine but nothing. Honestly, I'm starting to get the impression the place just doesn't like me. Anyway, as you walk up the stairs, things start to get brighter, little by little. The bulbs work on some floors at night, although it seems like they're too weak to make much of an impact outside of their weedy, immediate glow. No, what you're climbing towards is a skylight Nearly the whole hallway ceiling at the top of the building is taken up by this massive expanse of glass safety wire and what looks like a load of rubbish and weeds resting on top of it. Dunno how so much light gets through all the debris or how that light stays tombstone grey no matter what the weather is. Sort of reminds me of the botanic gardens because once I noticed it I started thinking about how the metalwork connecting it to the building looked old a lot older than I had any right to be, considering the rest of the place. Get a bit dizzy if I try and look at it too long, though I've never had issues with vertigo. But it's not a bad dizziness; it's more like the rush of taking the first deep breath after a panic attack, the, the relief of getting off a roller coaster and finding the ground beneath you blessedly, mercifully still. No matter how much the guys at the depot tease me I'm just as strong as any of them are and put putting just as much effort But somehow I'm always freezing cold when I reach that floor No matter how many parcels I've hauled The warmth of the skylight's grey glow Is always welcome Always grabs me for a minute or two And draws me close Like it's only the bottom of the building That doesn't like me I'm welcome for a moment. Oh, I nearly left out my second gig. Haul and takeout for an app that will remain nameless, but rhymes with cooler meats. Again, I'm not a poet. <laughs> it's also not exempt for the whole creepy vibe the building has going on. That bloke. The one I was talking about earlier, the broken packages orders food all the time. I don't know if he can't cook or just doesn't have an oven or something but I deliver to him pretty often and every single time it's the same thing. The food is absolutely fine when I pick it up from the restaurant and then as soon as I open the insulated bag to hand it to him it's ice cold or congealed or smells rotten that distinctly awful sweet fleshy sulphur smell that turns your stomach and definitely wasn't there when I picked it up. But he does the same thing every time. Sighs, takes it anyway, goes inside. Like he's accepted that his life is fucking horrible or something. I have no idea why or what is causing all that bad luck. I hope he doesn't eat the spoiled food. He did stop ordering from the local noodle spot after the worms at least. Anyway, I know I'm rambling a bit, but that bone-deep feeling of wrong? It seeps through every inch of that building. I've been caving before, on my gap year. That stupid somewhere where I decided to find myself, before I realised studying was the last thing I wanted to do and fell into the loving arms of the gig economy. I sweated through winding tunnels and cramped pinch points to reach caverns in the earth echo and natural cathedrals which remind you how small we really are. How insignificant in the face of nature and all her wrath. I was suddenly afraid. That's how this building feels. I don't know how they live there. Uh, the residents. I only see them in passing and like I said, they're mostly friendly enough. But it doesn't seem like a single one isn't aware that things in that place aren't normal. The gay couple who take my deliveries politely and make small talk while they replenish the salt line in front of their door before I leave. The guy in the camera close who's ordered takeaway on five separate Friday nights and told me conspiratorially he is on a first date when I can see it's the same woman drinking wine on the sofa behind him. Oh. The old woman on the top floor I squeeze past once a week, humming tunelessly to herself as she repaints the metal frame of the skylight with a long spindly brush and her neck bent at a sharp, painful angle. They're present, every one of them, but it's like they're not there. I feel that creeping up on me sometimes. When I'm getting up, again, to go to the depot, again, to drive the same route, again, to heat up microwave pasta, again, to swipe through tinder, again, to finish the bottle of wine, again. Look, it's not bad. It's just static. That whole building is a sinkhole of inertia. I can't tell if the people who live there want to. I just do. The caretaker creeps me out the most of everything, to be honest. Factors, I think they call them in Glasgow. I assume he does what most caretakers do, make sure the building gets cleaned, puts in for repairs, um, changes hallway light bulbs, that sort of stuff. But I never see him do any of it. The man is almost entirely stationary whenever I catch sight of him. Not obtrusive or in the way, but just still. stand there in the lobby just off to the side watching me unload boxes with deep set eyes and brush wire brows. that feel like they're probing under my skin and judging every emotion. I've encountered my share of sexist or creepy guys in this line of work but this is different. Dissecting He never extends a greeting or offers to hold the door or warns me that the lift isn't working, never says a word or moves until I'm out of sight. Doesn't matter if I've just turned a corner to grab something for a second, he'll be gone when I look back, moved without a sound. I thought he was a ghost for a while even though I don't believe in that sort of thing, but it was more entertaining to speculate about haunting than mentally deal with the fact that a normal old man would watch me shamelessly, like he wanted to open me up and chew on my organs. He spoke to me for the first time last week, and I really wish he hadn't. Over the past few months, I've noticed things getting heavier in the hallways. Smelled smoke more often, had to wrangle my way through flies that buzzed at a strange frequency that set my teeth on edge, been followed by the security cameras more blatantly. Like, they don't care anymore if I notice. And there's been an anticipation building in my gut. Dread, more like. Last week was the worst. Just getting through that front door was a nightmare. Everything in my body recalled at the idea of walking through that portal was prickling wrong, but I pushed through it and went about my job despite what looked like deformed wasps crawling on the outside of the doorframe like a warning. Every stairwell was filthy, the floor tacky with something brown and rusty I tried not to look at and the walls scuffed by strange feet. Every close was dimmer lit than usual. Every knock ignored, and the sounds from the flats as I passed were indecipherable as ever, but... Well, they didn't sound like any language I know, especially not the crying. Even the tuneless humming on the top floor seemed more grating and filling the quiet, despite the old woman not being present. I was more than ready to get out of spook town by then, so I dumped the packages as quickly as I could and hauled my dolly back downstairs with my eyes on the prize. Escape. I was sweating and panting longfuls at stale air by the time I reached the lobby, only to find the caretaker watching me with that stony expression from beside the lift that still didn't work. I ignored him in my rising panic and went for the door as fast as I could without running. That's where I fucked up. The metal edge of the dolly whacked a corner as I hurried past and I froze when I heard the caretaker move. He walked deliberately and I expected him to bend down and inspect whatever small gash the metal might have made in the paint but then he paused. I looked back and followed his gaze as my gut sank into my boots. The entire wall was cracked. A branching tree of destruction which aired from the bottom of the plaster all the way to the damp ceiling. Shifting from the shadow of the accident at the bottom to something slick further up. And then a mottled mould which spread over our heads as if on a mission to infect the whole building. And all unlucky enough to sail in her. He took a rag from the pocket of his stained faded overalls to wipe it over the origin point. The innocuous notch and plaster that could have been caused by my dolly. Came away red. A deep burgundy in the dim light that made my stomach turn. Walls, don't bleed. The landlord won't like that. He said. Like it was a threat. And that seemed to break whatever spell had fallen over me, because I lost it. I told him to tell a landlord then. Tell him about the stairs, of the filthy creepy building while he's at it because I, I really don't care what the landlord thinks. I just deliver f***ing parcels. Okay, take a look at me for a second and then smiled. Almost otherly if it weren't for the shark's eyes above the twist to his lips. and walked back into the dim halls. I shouldn't have said anything. I know that. But it was like a pressure saw bursting and everything spilling out before I could shove it back in. I had a few days booked off for unrelated reasons after that, so I haven't been back to the building since. But it's on my route tomorrow. I'm starting to worry about what state I'll find the place in. If things will have deteriorated further in the stairwell, if there'll be mutant wasps and alien flies and that dizzying humming ever louder. I'm starting to worry about what the caretaker told the landlord. Anyway, that's my story. Maybe I'll post an update if something weird happens tomorrow. If the spooky landlord doesn't kill me.
1: Folkslaw is an in-the-works and Tin Can Audio co-production, supported by Creative Scotland. Intruder was written by Sid Briscoe, he-him. The Delivery Driver was played by Hannah Raymond Cox, she-her, with additional voices provided by Ross McFarlane, he-him. Folkslaw's sound design is by David Devereaux, he-they. Episode art by J.M. Fife, they-them, with graphic design by B.B. June, they-them. Stay in touch with all things Folkslaw by following at FolkslawPod on Twitter, Support us by subscribing to Folklore, rating the podcast
0: online, and telling your friends. Again, that was Intruder, a story from Folklore, produced by Tin Can Audio and in the Works Productions. To stay in the know on all things folklore, go to Twitter for at TinCanAudio and at Folkslore pod, and to listen to folklore on your favorite podcast app. Up next, Death by Dying is back again to bring us some humor while dealing with the dearly departed. The series is currently in production for their second season, after a successful Indiegogo campaign and being nominated for 17 Audioverse Awards after Season 1. If you enjoy Pushing Daisies or a series of unfortunate events, this show is right up your alley. And if you're already hooked, you can hear all of their episodes and specials while you wait for Season 2 at deathbydyingpod.com, along with info for their upcoming fanfiction livestream event in the works, which is open to submissions until June 27th. Tonight's story involves one Lillian Parker and the books and niece she left behind. This is Death by Dying, Episode 2, Lillian Died. Enjoy.
2: Hello. I am the strikingly well-dressed obituary writer of this secluded town of Crestfall, Idaho, and this is Death by Dying. I will admit, I wasn't going to write about the death of Lillian Parker. I was far more taken by the death of Robert Jameson. He had died of dysentery, which is essentially the equivalent of being diarrhea to death. I found this mildly amusing. It made a great premise for a story. I mean, an obituary. But that night, I was greeted with something far more intriguing than lethal bowels. It was the night I met Charlotte. Death is exhausting. To be sure, being an obituary writer is no picnic on a sunny Sunday afternoon at the beach with your beautiful wife and three kids. It's not a picnic so much as a potluck with a bunch of strangers whose grandmother just died. And so, after a long day of funeral attending, I had retired to my apartment to get some shut-eye. Returning to my apartment is like returning to a coffin. Small, but comfortable, snug, free from the expectations of life, velvet-lined. It is a two-room apartment. Pickled frogs and antlers, stuffed squirrels and snow globes litter every surface. I am a collector, not of anything in particular, just anything to stave off the aching void-like loneliness of my existence. I poured myself a glass of brandy and stared out the window at the abandoned toy factory across the street. I loosened my Versace tie and changed into my Egyptian silk pajamas. It felt good. I was home. Home is never perfect, but it remains home nonetheless. It was at this moment that there was a knock at the door.
4: Are you the detective in town?
2: No, I'm the obituary writer.
4: Really? Someone said you solve murder cases. Murder? I'm Charlotte, by the way.
2: Forgive me, but I haven't gotten past the murder part.
4: It's my aunt, you see. What happened? Oh, she's fine. No, she's dead. Sorry, I don't know why I said that. Yeah, she's quite dead.
2: Her name was Charlotte Dawson. She wore black. Her hair was tied in a messy bun. She smelled like peaches, but not in an elderly way. And above all else, she looked tired. Not sleepy, but drained, as though her vitality had been consumed by a specter. She peered into my room and saw the skeletal remains. She seemed concerned.
4: Please. She was my aunt. She was all I had growing up. I need to know why she's gone.
2: I nodded. All she had. That's what she said of Lillian. I looked around my cluttered apartment, and it suddenly felt empty. So I said yes. This is the obituary of Lillian Parker. Lillian Parker, 59, was the local bookshop owner off Edgewood and Derby Street. Borrowed Books was the name of the shop, which started as a collection of books Lillian borrowed from friends and promised she would return in a timely manner. Instead, she started a bookstore. No one seemed to complain, however. Lillian was one of the sweetest and most unassuming people in town. It was a closed casket funeral due to the condition of the body when Lillian was found. Her shop was ransacked, books flung from shelves, bookcases knocked over. Her cats were already eating her by the time she was discovered. Never trust a cat. Earl Jameson, the alcoholic academic, found himself at the wrong funeral. He was meant to be at his Uncle Robert's funeral down the hall, but turned left instead of right, and he was no longer at the right memorial. Earl particularly inebriated (laughs) and particularly intellectual, was muttering to himself.
5: Let me tell you about the degradation of morals at the hands of funeral homes operating and profiting from a capitalist system centered around the dead.
2: The eulogies had just begun when Earl stepped into the room, and people assumed he was exactly where he was supposed to be. At the sight of Earl, Leroy Jones, whose gift for inappropriate timing was on an Olympic level, spoke up.
5: Hey there, Earl. Why don't you give a eulogy?
2: And suddenly, there he was, 50 eyes staring up at him with unassuming anticipation. Against his better judgment, Earl slumped up to the podium, musing over the fact that at this very moment, he was probably supposed to be giving a eulogy for his uncle. As is custom of awkward moments, sniffles and coughs and throat clearing filled the room. Crickets aren't in season yet, but if they were, they most certainly would have been chirping. After much contemplation,
5: Earl spoke up. At a time like this, I believe silence is appropriate. And people loved it. They congratulated
2: him for it all
5: week. What
2: is poignant exists in the space between what is spoken and what is not spoken. Those who speak in a moment of poignancy often have missed the moment entirely. Speaking of, Pastor Jeff had some very poignant words of his own.
6: Familia! You know, I had a father. I used to love to catch fish in the backyard with my dad. We'd go out back with maybe a halibut, red snapper, a tuna. We'd toss them back and forth, back and forth, catching fish. I loved my father, and I loved to catch fish. One day, my father, he left to pursue his dreams of working on an oil rig. That was a sad day but i have another father a father who is not in the louisiana bayou i have a father in heaven a father who is always there to catch a fish with me if you're ever feeling sad if you feel alone if you need someone he's right there and he's holding a red snapper let us pray
2: Now that Lillian Parker was dead, everyone was scouring her vandalized bookshop, looking in a feverish fashion for the books she had never returned to them. They seemed oddly calm about it, however, as though they didn't mind her so-called borrowing of their books. Charlotte had the suspicion Lillian had been murdered, and I was tempted to believe her. Perhaps it was my instincts and my deep desire for intrigue. But murder is the spice of life. I knew where I had to go. I knew just who I had to see. Everything is beautiful when it rains at night. The Crestfall Graveyard is no exception, as I'm sure many of you know. The earth becomes soft beneath your feet, the rain tickles your face, and the tombstones become fractured by the falling droplets. Waiting for me was the Angel of Death. She is tall and infinitely pale, with bony ribcage wings behind her back. We have become friends over the years. The Angel's pet, the button-eyed raven, looked depressed as usual.
7: You're late.
2: Look who's talking. You're the queen of the late.
7: I cannot wait to take your soul.
2: How have things been? Not good. What happened? I hurt my foot despair and calamity, moaned the button-eyed raven. Disappointment and damnation. I peered around the graveyard, taking it all in. In the distance, I could see the groundskeeper, Walter Grimsley, and he raised his lantern to say hello, like a flirtatious man might raise a glass of scotch from across the bar. What do you have for me?
7: It's important you know
1: something. Yes? Lillian Parker. When I came to collect her soul, she had a message to give. She said she died because of a book.
2: My eyes lit up.
1: Careful. Death is ever-present.
2: And with that, I sprinted across the muddied ground, jumping over the coffins that have gradually been raising out of the earth due to years of erosion and bad planning. I was perhaps inappropriately gleeful. (laughs) Danger leads to disaster, cried the button-eyed raven. What if your friends don't really like you? It was relatively easy to break into borrowed books. Who's to notice some shattered glass when the place is already a mess? The marigold light of the street lamp outside projected jumbled shadows onto the wall. Paintings hung askew. The smell of flesh ripped from bone tainted the air. I looked down, and there was a cat staring up at me. Black with white stripes, like a zebra. There were flecks of something meaty on its whiskers. There were two other cats, one tiptoeing across the pillaged shop. The third was on the checkout counter, pawing at a novel. These cats have had a taste for human flesh. Who knows what will become of them? The striped one nuzzled my leg, purring. It nibbled my ankle slightly, but then thought better of it. It turned with a certain confidence and sauntered towards the back of the shop. I followed it, careful not to break the spines of the books beneath my feet. In the back was a bookcase that hadn't been knocked over, but something else was noteworthy about it. All of the books had been removed from the shelves except one. It remained perfectly upright. I pulled on it, but it didn't budge. I pulled harder and it tipped like a lever, and the bookcase sprung open like a door. Beyond was a darkened room lined with logbooks and ledgers in alphabetical order. I picked one at random. C12. The pages fluttered like wings as I thumbed through the tome. March 20th. Sarah Carlisle stole a Jesus action figure from the gift shop of the church of Right Here Right Now. April 29th. Susan Colick, the local florist, saw a mysterious beast-like figure in the dark woods while she was on her morning run. May 16th. Scott Chapman's cows had become addicted to methamphetamines. These were confessions. These were admissions. These books were filled with secrets. Perhaps this was why people were so unbothered by Lillian taking their books for her to sell. They were bartering so she would hold on to their secrets. I scanned the shelves, flipping through ledgers and diaries and scandalous photo albums until something caught my eye, or rather the absence of something caught my eye. One book was missing. Only one. J1. I remembered the angel's words Lillian died
1: because of a book.
2: The process was a simple one. Scour this downright marvelous town of Crestfall, Idaho, and find all of the people whose last names began with J.A. The first, Lisa Jane answered the door with a wild look in her eyes. Come quickly, she said. The room was lit with candles, cinnamon scented candles. I found this offensive, but said nothing. This was the wrong season for cinnamon scented things. Think before you scent next time, Lisa Jane. She pointed at the far wall straight ahead. There I saw my shadow and hers, and then a third. I looked around the room searching for a source, but the room was empty. The space was defined by lack. It was a shadow with no one to cast it. It waved and I waved back. Is this a bad time? I asked. She said the shadow had been there for weeks now and they had fallen in love. I congratulated them and made my leave as it is imprudent to interrupt young lovers. The second on my list was Jonathan Jackson, His house was on fire, and I thought it best to leave him to sort out his issues. The third was Mia Jasper. Mia Jasper lives above Lu's Sushi and Chinese Cuisine, where she pays the landlord in strange luminescent fish she finds in the lagoon outside the Crestfall Laboratories. Lu's is delicious for a reason. Mia Jasper left her apartment at exactly 12.37 a.m. Her dyed blue hair glistened in the neon glow of the restaurant's sign. She wore a black leather jacket with cuts and holes that suggested she has been in more than one gang-related knife fight. Under her arm was a book, perhaps a stolen book. And now, the condolences. Lu's Sushi and Chinese Cuisine sends their condolences. They say, Egg Roll on down to Lu's, your low main spot for Chinese cuisine. We now deliver. We're sorry for your loss. Condolences also brought to you by the Dollar Store Romance Novel Book Club. They say, if you're romantic, and if you're cheap, we welcome one and all to join our book club. This week, we are reading Disrobed, My Affair with a Celibate Monk by Janet Meriwether. Thank you. Lillian would have been grateful and slightly confused by your thoughtful words. Down winding streets and narrow alleyways, I followed Mia Jasper's meandering path. I slunked in the shadows, stealthy as a jackal in a midnight fog. She stopped abruptly at the door of Siren's Diner.
4: Why are you following me?
2: I combat roll behind a recycling bin. Oh. Crestfall is a very environmentally conscious place. I can see you. I poked my head up. What do you want? Mia Jasper, you are officially a suspect in the murder of Lillian Parker.
4: Murder? Why?
2: Your name? Your book? Things are adding up.
4: Two things are adding up to murder? This is a textbook on criminal law, dude. A textbook? Yeah, I'm studying for the bar exam.
2: Oh. Congratulations.
4: I'm clean, alright? This doesn't seem healthy. You should get a life.
2: I'm a little busy with death right now. She rolled her eyes so far it seemed as though she could see the back of her own head. And with that... She stepped into Siren's Diner. Through the closing door, I caught a glimpse inside. At the counter was Earl Jameson. Jameson, spelled J-A. The lights were dingy, the air smelled of bad coffee, and somewhere a moth was fluttering over a pot of black sludge. Earl leaned over the Formica counter, nursing a flask with an image
5: on its side of a lion doing Pilates. Earl Jameson. Ah, Obituary writer, the author of Small Tragedies, hello. Interesting to see you here. Yes, well, I come here to sober up. He poured the remainder
2: of his flask into a cup of coffee. I knew exactly what I would say. I had a speech prepared on note cards. It had to do with truth and justice and balance in the universe. It had to do with the battlegrounds of right and wrong. I proclaimed that murder was the death of human decency. It was absolutely stunning. I just knew it would convince Earl to talk about the stolen book. You've come here about the book, haven't you? Oh. I was looking forward to that monologue. At least I've told you, patient reader. The book from Lillian's bookshop? Yes. So you are the culprit. You broke into borrowed books. You killed Lillian Parker.
5: (sighs) Are you familiar with Michel Foucault's cultural theory on power and its relationship to the knowledge of power? It proclaims that power and knowledge are inextricably intertwined. Power is a function of knowledge, yes. But more importantly, in the instance of our little predicament here, knowledge is an exercise of power. Power is a blender, and knowledge makes the blender go, my boy. James Watt invented the steam engine. He invented power. With knowledge... uh, Castro! Uh, What did he do when they tried to kill him with a cigar? He didn't have the tools, good man. If Castro had known what and whither it went, if he had known the way those subboreal winds wafted, had he the knowledge to back up the thought of his knowledge to back up his power, to make his blender go, we would have been drinking a different smoothie, O.W. The problem is when those who think they are in control lack the knowledge to stay in control. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say you're an idiot, obituary writer. What you lack is knowledge. I would never kill anyone, no. This was a personal matter. This wasn't about death. This was about life. My Uncle Robert's life. He was a bit of a literary artist, you see, and he wrote a book, a children's book, that he wrote for me when I was just a boy. He was terrified to share it with the world because he didn't know what people would think of him, so he hid it away and borrowed books. You could say I wanted to (laughs) borrow it, (laughs) but uh, I did a little more damage than I intended.
2: What was the book, if I may ask?
5: He titled it The Lonely Astronaut. It's about an astronaut searching the universe for his lost friend. It's a good read. My uncle is dead now, you see, and I'm feeling a little lonely myself. I thought that retrieving the book would bring him closer to me.
2: So you didn't kill Lillian Parker?
5: No! I'm an academic! It may seem that I break into places willy-nilly and snatch books like some sort of criminal mastermind, but I would never, I say NEVER, take a life.
2: Then how is it that just moments after you break into borrowed books, Lillian Parker turns up dead?
5: Ah, that would be a mystery even to me. All I did was take a book that was meant for me. At that very moment, Leroy burst into Siren's Diner. (sighs) Obituary writer. You're going to want to see this.
2: Borrowed books was packed with people despite it being the wee hours of the morning. Charlotte stood off to the side near the room of secrets with downcast eyes. At the center of the room was the butcher. The coroner has been missing for months now. And after much debate from the committee about nettlesome things regrettably and guaranteed hindrance that no one wants... The acronym can't right now, if that is easier to remember. The butcher was appointed to take his place. He knows his blood, meat, and flesh. He scanned the room with keen eyes. He tested the wind patterns with an unwavering finger. He dropped down on all fours and sniffed the books. He licked the splattered blood on the counter. Huh. Oh, negative. As I suspected, he muttered to himself. The white striped cat hissed at him and he hissed back. Well, uh, do to you do? He launched himself back onto his feet and whipped around to speak to the crowd. He was still wearing his butcher's apron, covered in pig's blood. Beside him was his pet goat, Chester, yeah. who hasn't left his side since Wyatt Hudson died. They do everything together. They stroll through the mud fields, they go shopping, They share a bottle of pink Moscato before bed. The Butcher cleared his throat. throat)
5: This is no longer a crime scene.
2: A sigh of relief washed over the crowd, as though choreographed. I must have missed the memo. It was impressively synchronized. Lillian Parker was murdered. A collective gasp from the crowd. Surely this was rehearsed.
5: By this
2: book. He held up a copy of Disrobed, my Fair," with a celibate monk.
5: She had a severe blood disease, you see. Fatal, to say the least. Upon discovering her ransacked shop, she scrambled to find her favorite book to make sure it was still there. Whether it was this embarrassment to literature or not, I cannot be sure. A surprisingly deep paper cut to the radial artery caused some serious exsanguination. Blood spraying everywhere like a fire hose. <laughs> Horrendous. Blood everywhere. Totally awesome. It truly was an unnecessarily excessive accident.
2: The crowd murmured amongst themselves. I remembered the angel's words. Lillian died.
5: Because of a book. And then her cats ate her, but that's beside the point. (laughs) Um, That is all.
2: The butcher threw his apron back like a cape and fled from the bookshop. Chester trotted after him. The crowd was ecstatic. Jubilation abound now that the death was solved. A small impromptu party with champagne ensued. Charlotte disappeared around the corner into the room of secrets. I followed. At least she wasn't murdered, I said.
4: I'm not sure it matters.
2: I thought you wanted to know how your aunt died.
4: No, I didn't realize what I wanted. I think I wanted to know why.
2: Life is fragile.
4: So are the living.
2: I sat down next to her, crisscross applesauce, as is customary of serious conversations on floors. We talked for hours about her aunt, about her, about her affinity for writing haikus about walruses.
4: Cloudless, bulgy toss, a glorious walrus flies whilst watching the sea.
2: We were connected by a string that led to a singularity of loneliness.
4: Will you take the cats? I'm sorry? Perhaps they could keep you company. Who? The cats.
2: Surely you would want them. They were Lilians.
4: No, I'm, I'm allergic to cats and, well, they ate my aunt so I have mixed feelings, but if I don't take them I don't know who would. But I think they could find a home with you. I think... Please? OK. Thank you.
2: Well, good night.
4: Good night, obituary writer.
2: And so I returned to my apartment, with three man-eating cats. They immediately started knocking things over and destroying the place. But I didn't mind. The apartment didn't feel so dead anymore. A glass of unfinished brandy was waiting for me. I resumed my bruteful staring out the window. The abandoned toy factory was happy, and it glowed with a crimson light to show me its delight. Perhaps not everything is lost, even the things that seem abandoned, even abandoned for good. I think it would be best to leave you with a passage from Robert Jameson's The Lonely
8: Astronaut. Nothing from the planets. Nothing from the space junk. Nothing from the astrogleam of a fallen meteor. The lonely astronaut searched and searched and searched, and would never truly stop searching, because the hope of finding his friend, his, his dearest friend, was what made those distant stars in the sky shine just a little brighter. This has been an obituary of Lillian Parker. this has been death by dying written and directed by evan gulak produced by nico gerentes featuring the voices of evan gulak as the obituary writer and the button-eyed raven angela morris as charlotte hannah smith as the angel of death joshua jordan as pastor jeff iridian fiero as mia jasper and nico gerentes as earl jameson leroy jones the butcher and Chester the Goat. The Lonely Astronaut, narrated by George Czar. Music composed by Nicholas Gasparini, Stephen O'Brien, Kevin McLeod, and Nico Jarentis. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Creative producer and script editor, Joshua Jordan. Recording engineer and casting director, Nico Jarentis. If any of you inquisitive listeners would like to send their condolences, comments, Hopes, fears, or dreams, you can contact the obituary writer personally at theobituarywriter at gmail.com or follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Death by Dying Pod. And remember, if you're going to borrow a book, make sure you have every intention of borrowing it back.
0: Again, that was Death by Dying Season 1, Episode 2 Lillian Died created by Evan Gulak and Nico Jarentes. For more information and news about their upcoming fanfiction fiction live stream, go to deathbydyingpod.com and listen to Death by Dying on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And last but not least, our friends at It's All Been Done Presents are going to take us out to the end of the hour as we celebrate their return to the stage this July in Columbus. Be sure to check out iabdpresents.com for more details, and happy listening.
9: Our next feature tonight is It's All Bend Theater. Enjoy!
0: Good
10: evening and welcome to It's All Bend Theater. As always, I am your humble host, your magnificent manservant, your generous guide, Sir Hubert Donald Vatican, playful Norwal Esquire, the third. <laughs> Tonight I bring you one of my absolute favorite stories, Hansel and Gretel. This story has been told countless times with many different variations, but few have gotten it right. I, of course, know exactly how the story goes and seek to correct this injustice. And so, without further ado, I present my... ...superior version of the seminal classic Hansel and Gretel.
9: In a small hut in the forest long ago lived Hansel and Gretel and their parents, um... Let's just call them Jan and Bert, shall we? As our tale begins, the children have just gone to bed for the evening, and we join Jan and Bert in their one-room hovel.
11: Oi, Bert! We're almost out of food, we are!
9: Then you best be going to the store tomorrow, Jan!
11: With what money, you dumb twat? You spent it all betting on the jousters. No, oh, Jan,
12: you know the Green Knight was a sure thing. It's not my bloody fault that he got the gout. Besides, every time I give you the money, you waste it on a fancy new washboard or some such nonsense.
11: Now, listen to yourself. A fancy washboard. Who ever heard of such a thing? Besides, I need it to clean your skid-marked underwear, I do.
12: Toilet paper hadn't been invented yet, Jan. What else am I supposed to wipe with besides my (laughs) hands?
11: How about some leaves like a civilized person?
12: Go with the children.
11: Well, I wasn't the one who started the bloody fight now, was I?
12: Oh, Jan, one of these days. (laughs) Bang, zoom, straight to the moon.
11: Oh, don't you be threatening me, but I know where your bodies are buried. But tell me, if we don't have any money... How are we going to eat?
12: Well, we're going to have to get creative then, we are.
11: Oh, yeah, Mr. Brain Trust, You ain't never been creative a day in your life.
12: I don't see you using much imagination to arrange our furniture and make a nice home.
11: It's a one room. How the bloody hell am I supposed to rearrange one room? I don't have a lot of choices here, do I?
12: Mm, well, this is, I think... Uh...
11: Not your strong suit. Shut your mouth,
12: Jen. Let me think on it.
11: You might want to stand up so the thoughts can get out of your butt.
12: <laughs> that isn't very helpful now, is it?
11: You aren't very helpful, Bert.
12: I've got it! We can eat one of the kids. Uh, what? The boy. He's a fat one. And you never wanted a second child anyway.
11: I haven't ever liked him very much. <laughs> Ungrateful cow. He lays around, smelly to boot.
12: Exactly. We wouldn't be missing nothing without him, would we?
11: Hmm. I do have some recipes that I'm sure he would be good in.
12: <laughs> I better, better make a stew and spread it out. We don't want to be hungry again in a week.
11: Oh, good point. I need the girl to help around the house, and we don't want to eat her too quickly.
12: I got an idea.
11: Oh, another one?
12: Yeah. We can cut off the boy's arms and legs one at a time and keep him alive. That way we can keep the meat fresh longer.
11: That is so hot, Bert. Mm
12: -hmm. Now
11: I'm remembering why I married you.
12: It was just a bit of thought.
11: Oh, Don't be modest, Bert. Get your butt into bed and I will show you what genius gets you.
12: (laughs) (laughs) The kids.
11: (laughs) Let them wake up. What time they learned what a prick is for?
9: (laughs) (laughs) What Jan and Bert should have known, if they weren't complete morons, is that their kids, Hansel and Gretel, heard every word they said. And as soon as their parents fell asleep, the children snuck out into the forest.
7: Oh, Hansel, we just have to get you away from these horrible people. (laughs) They're our parents, Gretel. (laughs) You heard them, they're monsters. I'm sure they didn't mean it. They're just blowing off steam. Have you ever known them to either one of them to utter a kind word to us? Well,
6: no.
12: But I'm sure
7: they love us. No, they don't. You don't. We have to get away.
6: All right. But where are they going to go? There's no one around for miles.
7: Well, we could go to the castle.
6: The castle isn't going to take an urchin like us, greater.
7: Well, I could offer to clean
6: for them. And what about me? What am I going to do? I don't know. Oh,
12: see? There you go. Yeah, always just thinking about yourself.
7: Of course not, but do you have a better idea, Bozo? Oh, what about the old lady that lives in the woods? Deeper in the woods? Away from civilization?
12: Yeah! That's, uh,
6: that's stupid! Uh, no, it's not. And she can't call for help if we could just take over as a house.
7: And then we can eat her food? But what if she doesn't have anything good to eat?
6: But she's always got the baskets of sweets with her when she comes by. I'm sure she's got more to
7: home. Oh, that's true. And she hands them out so freely. I'll bet that she's easy to knock over and steal. (laughs) Like taking candy from an old lady.
6: (laughs) Now you're thinking? Which way is the house? Um,
7: she comes down that path. Alright, let's go. Shouldn't we wait until morning? Nah, I'm going to be hungry by morning. Oh, don't worry about that. I've been stashing this bag of breadcrumbs when Mama isn't looking. We can eat them for breakfast. Crumbs? It's better than nothing.
6: <sighs> Fine. Give me some now.
7: No, we need to save them. I'll just put them in my pocket until morning. Fine. But you're right. We shouldn't wait until morning. Dad might wake up and chop off your arms by then.
6: <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Into the
7: woods.
9: Hansel and Gretel walked all night, and by morning, they were very tired.
12: I can't take another step.
7: Me either. We have to. We have to have come far enough. We could probably take a little nap.
6: All right. But first, breakfast. Hand over the breadcrumbs.
7: Oh, boys, there's a... Uh-oh?
6: Uh-oh? <laughs>
7: It looks like there's a hole in my pockets. They fell out. Fell out? Oh, calm down. It was just crumbs. They were our only food. Go back and pick them up. I'm sure all the animals got to them by now.
6: Then cut off your finger. I'm hungry.
7: You're just as bad as Mom and Dad.
6: I'm not the one that lost the crumbs. It's only fair. I am not. Wait, wait. What's that? I'm not falling for that trick.
7: No, seriously, it looks like a home, but it's... it's odd. Oh No! Oh, get the house, kill me the candy! And gingerbread! and icing And gumdrops! Oh, what the living hell is that? It's just... it must be the old woman's house. Let's go!
9: The children run up to the house and, indeed, it's all made of kinds of edible sweets. Greedily and without thought, they tear right in, ripping pieces off and shoving them into their mouths, Spittle and bits of sugar flying everywhere.
6: Stop! 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 That's my house you're eating! You're more? It's my breakfast? The house is delicious! Seriously, stop! You can't eat my house! If you don't want us to eat your house, why did you make it out of candy? Yeah? What? Wait, I recognize you. You're the children that live in the house I pass on my way to the castle. Yes, that's us. But you have parents at a home. Why do you attack mine? Oh, the parents wanted to eat us? What?
7: It's true. They were going to cut off Hansel's arms and legs and fries them up. <laughs>
6: what imaginations? <laughs> <laughs> we heard them ourselves. I am sure you didn't hear what you think you heard. Don't worry, I'll take you home and I'll. I'm sure we can straighten things out. We are not going anywhere.
7: No way. Not. Too. Not with all this good eating in front of us. But again,
6: this is my house. You cannot eat my house. Walk off, children. <laughs> I think I've been more than patient. But really, this cannot stand. Stop it at once and come inside and I'll fry you some nice eggs. We don't want eggs. We want candy. Candy, candy, candy. Children, what are you going to do about it? Well,
5: this kingdom is very loose. Stand your ground, law, So, if you force me to go back inside, I will get my shotgun. (gasps) You wouldn't dare. I don't
6: want to. But really, you ungrateful beasts are forcing my hand. Hansel, huh?
7: I think we should listen to the old
5: lady.
6: Oh, great old. Don't be such a spoiled sport.
7: Come on, we'll just go inside for a minute. I don't want to. Hansel. Listen
6: to your sister, dear, right this way.
9: No sooner did the old woman escort the children into her kitchen, Gretel took a running dive and shoved her into the wide oven.
6: What? No, stop! Shut up, you old witch! Hansel, turn on the oven! What? I'm I'm not a witch! I'm just a humble candy maker, and I've been nothing but nice to you two! Oh, so this was your plan? Of course. Oh, smart. I know. One broiled witch coming right up! No!
7: Almost.
6: (laughs) Lock the oven door and let's get back to our breakfast. So that is the story of
10: Hansel and Gretel. How it really happened. The moral, as you may have guessed, is that all people are cruel and heartless and only in it for themselves. (laughs) Especially children. (laughs) Until next time, I have been Sir Hubert Donald Radegan Fyther Norwell Esquire, The third. And this is It's All Been Theater. Good night, sleep tight, and don't eat sugar before bedtime.
6: It's All Been Done Radio number 164. It's All Been Theater number two, Hansel and Gretel. Star Dan Kondo as Hubert and Bert and the Witch. Kristen Green as Jan, Seamus Talty as Hansel, and Samantha Stark as Gretel. The music was composed and performed by Kristen Green. As always, our narrator is Chris Allen, our Foley artist with Seamus Talty. This episode was written by Jerome Wetzel and directed by Chase McCants. Please check out our website. It's allbendoneradio.com. And have a great week.
0: This is 90.5 FM WCBE Columbus and 106.3 FM in Newark.